Well, good morning again. Apparently it's a Royal Grande morning. It's good to have so many visitors from the local neighborhood here. And you're certainly welcome. And this morning we come to Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 2 in Scripture. And I have to admit, I wasn't quite sure what to do with our text this morning. And it's not that I didn't know what to say. It's that I, I've already preached this sermon at this church before. Way back in August, before I was hired here, on a Sunday evening while I was candidating, I decided to preach on Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Shortly thereafter, I, I accepted the call to come and pastor this church. It started on October 1st. And then I decided, hey, maybe I'll just preach through the book of Titus. But I, I kind of didn't think about it. Wait, I've got a little problem. We've, we've been here before, Titus chapter 3, 1 through 2. So now I'm faced with the decision. Do I skip over these verses and just move on to verse 3, pretending you know maybe no one will notice? Or you can download the old message if we still have it. Or do I just go ahead and preach it again? So I've decided to preach it again. But I've changed some things up, so don't worry too much. The old message was only 30 minutes long, being on Sunday evening, so I added some content. And I figured it couldn't hurt because, to be honest with you, not that many people were there that Sunday night, so it's new to most of you anyway. And still, who remembers much from a sermon five months ago anyway? So I don't think it can hurt. At the very least, if you have heard some of this before, you can test yourself, see how, your, how good your sermon retention is. And we can, at the very least, know how well you were paying attention five months ago. So you can let me know after. But for the rest of us, let's go ahead and open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, if you haven't already. And as you're turning this morning, I've got a question for you. Does anyone know or remember who was Caesar when Jesus was crucified? Who was Caesar when he was crucified? You probably know Pontius Pilate. He was the governor of Judea when Christ was crucified. But I'm talking about who was the emperor of Rome when Christ was crucified. Augustus Caesar was king when Jesus was born, but it was Tiberius Caesar who was king when Jesus was crucified. And if you didn't know that, that's probably all you know about this guy, Tiberius Caesar. I want to tell you a little bit more about him. Tiberius Caesar rose to power as a gifted general and that seemingly no territory he could not conquer. And during his rise to power as Caesar, he seemed to be a, a just man, a, a decent man. But once his power was secure and he was no longer under the public scrutiny, he rapidly succumbed to all sorts of passions and is all just a disguise. In reality, he was one of the most wicked and evil kings to ever rule Rome. His wickedness and depravity is rivaled only by that of Nero. To start, he was known for being a hard drinker, so much so that his name, Tiberius Claudius Nero, was replaced by the nickname Biberius Caldius Miro, which means drinker of hot wine with no water added. Basically, that's like the ancient Roman way of calling someone a lousy drunk. In addition to drunkenness, he was a, a serious sexual deviant. He had a separate private sporting house where sexual immorality was practiced in secret. Young girls and young men whom he had collected from all over the empire were enslaved there. He was a pedophile. The ancient historian Suetonius wrote, Some aspects of his criminal obscenity are almost too vile to discuss, much less believe. End quote. And he's right. I'll just leave it at that. In addition to drunkenness and gross sexual morality, Tiberius was also a thief. He often confiscated 
property with bogus charges. One time he forced an old man to name him as the sole heir to his property, and then he forced the man to commit suicide. Another time when the king of Parthia was dethroned by his people, he fled to Antioch with this huge treasure, thinking that he was going to be protected by Rome. Well, Tiberius showed up, robbed him, and then killed him. The list goes on. Drunkenness, sexual morality, robbery, murder. It was said that not a day, however holy, passed during his reign without an execution. And sometimes as many as 20 people a day were executed, including women, including children. He had a close advisory council of 20 men. Only three of them died of natural causes. The rest he dealt away with sooner or later, one after another. Also, when two of his grandsons were rising to power in the Senate, he had false charges brought against them because they were becoming too powerful. He had them declared public enemies and starved to death. I'll give you one last anecdote to illustrate his wickedness, as if you're not already convinced. One day he was visiting Capre, and a fisherman suddenly burst upon him to present him with a fish he just caught, just an enormous mullet fish. But Tiberius was so scared and startled by this that he ordered his guards to rub the fisherman's face with the fish. The scales skinned it raw, and the poor fellow shouted in agony, Thank heaven I did not bring Caesar, that huge crab I also caught. Tiberius sent for the crab and had it used in the same way. Now, can you imagine if this guy was king or president or ruler today? We would not stand for such cruelty. He'd be impeached or imprisoned or something for his immoralities. And there's no way we would accept leadership like this in our government today. But why am I bringing this up? Think back to Matthew 22. You don't have to turn there, but just think think back to that chapter where Christ, he's teaching, and the Jews, they're trying to trap him in a statement. So some Jews come up to him. They say, so Jesus, is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Basically, is it lawful to pay taxes or not? Jesus understood their trickery, so he, he replied, show me the coin. Show me the coin used for the poll tax. So they brought him the coin as a denarius. Remember what he said next? He said, whose likeness and inscription is this? Who's on the coin? And they said, Caesar. And then he said to them, then, render the Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And the Jews walked away, silent, amazed. You remember the story, I trust. The story changes a little bit when you add one little detail. Whose face was on the coin? Whose face was on the coin? At the time, it was Tiberius Caesar. The wicked, drunken, immoral, thieving, murdering, Tiberius Caesar. His face was on the coin when they handed it to Jesus. And also, if you remember, the Caesars, they deified themselves. They declared themselves to be gods, and they had statues of themselves placed in temples alongside the gods. So in a very real sense, a Jew could look at Caesar's inscription on the coin 
and even see it as a form of idolatry. So here's the picture. Here's Jesus, the true Son of God. He's holding the coin of an incredibly wicked, evil, and immoral man who himself claims to be a God. And what does Jesus say? Without hesitation, he says, pay him. Give him his taxes. Pay him his taxes. When you add to this the fact that the Jews, they hated two things, Caesar and taxes, the fact that Jesus is saying this, it's, it's remarkable that he would say this. And How could this be? How could Jesus be supporting the reign of such a wicked king like this by saying, pay his taxes? It's because Jesus understood that the institution of government was God-ordained, even if men pervert it. Therefore, he simply said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. And if there is ever a text that instructed us to respect and submit to the governing authorities, this would be it. I'll give you this illustration this morning and, and kind of go into this rabbit trail of sorts because it, it perfectly sets the stage for the text we are going to look at this morning. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Turn there if you're not already. Where Paul now, Paul takes a turn at instructing us to respect and submit to the governing authorities. And what are the duties of the church as citizens of the empire, so to speak. Now, how, how are young Christians in, in Titus, that, in the island of Crete, how are they to live in the midst of an unbelieving society with largely unbelieving leadership? Those were huge questions back then, and, and they're still huge questions today. And Titus 3, 1 through 2, helps answer those questions. Titus, as we've come to see, it's a book in large part about just Christian living, how to live the Christian life. And our text this morning tells us how to live in the midst of the world, a largely unbelieving world with largely unbelieving leadership. How do you deal with that? How do you live with that? Titus 3, 1 through 2. Now, before we get into our verses, last week we skipped over a verse at the end of chapter 2. And so I want to cover that verse right now just by way of introduction. And it works out nicely because chapter 2, verse 15 is it's actually a hinge between chapters 2 and 3. It's a good transition. So look at chapter 2, verse 15. Paul says at the end of that chapter, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Here when Paul says these things, he's referring to everything he just said in chapter 2 which in short was the gospel and its implications. And that, regarding that, the gospel, Titus is to speak, to exhort, and to reprove. And those three terms, they really sum up the preacher's task. First, the preacher is to speak or to teach God's truth. That's simply helping people understand what God says. Second, he is to exhort or urge or entreat people. More than just stating truth, the preacher is to help people believe it and to obey it. And then thirdly, he's to rebuke, and that's keeping people on the, the straight and narrow path of, of following Christ. 
And so we see the overall, the preacher's task is to help people understand, believe, and obey God's truth. That's the job of the teacher, the preacher. And verse 15, he's to do this with all authority. I was tempted here to do an entire message on the preacher's authority or the Bible's authority, but didn't have time. Just understand this point. Titus and every other preacher is to speak with authority. But where does their authority come from? It doesn't come from themselves. It comes from God. Preachers have authority only because they're preaching out of God's book. There's nothing special about them that gives them authority over any other person. Simply that they are preaching out of God's book. Pastors who minister out of God's authoritative word are themselves speaking with God's authority. Preachers are not called to share personal insights or opinions or philosophies because those carry no authority. When I hear a preacher on the radio or sometime today just kind of sharing their personal opinion, they're not really preaching out of the Bible, but they're just, they're just talking, being clever, being funny, just amusing. I always find myself asking a question, who cares? You know, why should I listen to you? I want to know what God has to say about this or that, not really what you have to say about this or that. Instead, the goal of the preacher is to step out of the way and let the word of God shine through. Otherwise, why bother? Why go to church? What's the point? So understand this, that a preacher has authority only to the degree that his words conform to the word of God. But then get this, if his words do conform to the word of God, then disregarding him is the same thing as disregarding the word of God. And that's why he says in verse 15, let no one disregard you. This is what Paul is telling Titus in 2.15. He's encouraging him in his pastoral duties, reminding him to speak with God's delegated authority, not letting people disregard him or in turn disregarding God's word. And this verse really serves as a hinge between chapters 2 and chapter, and chapter 3 because just after this, just after Paul reminds Titus to speak with authority, he gives a reminder for the people to listen to authority. Look at verse 15 again. He says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority, but no one disregard you. Then chapter 3, verse 1, With authority, he says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, and then what? To authorities, to be obedient, and so on. Right after Paul finishes telling Titus to speak with authority, he says, don't forget, remind the people themselves to listen to authority, for that is the will of God. Now in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul shifts gears, and he's going to start talking primarily about civil authority, the, the government, the world's rulers. And this brings us back to our initial concern. As we get back into Titus chapter 3, verse 1 now, you know, what are the duties of the church as citizens of the empire or citizens of the United States? How are Christians to live in the midst of an unbelieving society, largely, with unbelieving leadership? How? We come back to Titus 3. And these are questions we still have to answer today because that's us. 
We live in that world with those type of leaders. So from this text, from Titus 3, 1 through 2, I want to give you two important reminders for Christians living in an unbelieving world. Two important reminders for Christians living in an unbelieving world. And the first reminder is this. Be submissive to authorities. Be submissive to authorities. Look at verse 1. He says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Right off the bat, Paul urges Titus to remind the congregations. He's not telling them something new necessarily, but he's reminding them. He's telling them what they already know. And that is to remember and apply what they know. What's he reminding them of? Verse 1. First, to be subject to rulers and authorities. Now, first off, we've encountered this exhortation many times. To be subject. To submit. We see it all over in the book of Titus. It means to place yourself under the authority of another. It's not talking about inferiority or superiority. It's just a different role. And earlier in chapter 2, we learned that wives are called to be subject to their husbands. Later in chapter 2, it says servants are called to be subject to the masters. And now in chapter 3, he's saying, look, everybody is to be subject to, what does he say? Rulers and authorities. Rulers and authorities. Two nouns, you really put them together. And they indicate all official powers. Just kind of comprehensive. Any ruler, any authority. No ranks are given. No distinctions are made. And combined, these two terms really denote any authority figure. From the president, to the policeman, to the school principal. It doesn't matter what level of authority a person has. God wants you to respect and submit to that authority. You can take the extreme case, for instance. Have you ever seen those really sad-looking security guards? You know, the ones that they've got, they don't have a gun. They don't even have a taser or a baton or pepper spray. The best they have is like a flashlight and a walkie-talkie. But even to them, granted, within the very small bounds of their authority, you should respect and submit to. Earlier we talked about delegated authority. You have to remember this. Our government, or any government, does not get its authority from the people. Government does not get its authority from the people. Government gets its authority from God. God himself delegated some of his authority to this human institution we call government. Read Genesis 9. Government was appointed by God after the flood for the preservation of mankind. And so remember this the next time you want to rebel against government's authority or God's authority. Now, of course, this does not excuse the responsibility of government leaders for their wickedness or their abuse of that authority, but you can't control that. All you can do is to do what God wants you to do, and that's to respect and submit to, what does it say? Rulers and authorities. One commentator writes, The Christian's obligation to respect and obey human government does not rest on its being democratic or just but solely on its being the God-ordained means 
by which human society is regulated. End quote. Last year, if you remember, we witnessed these really severe riots in London. Remember those? And we got a glimpse of anarchy. Anarchy is what society looks like without law, without government. And amongst the youth today, anarchy is cool. It's become a cool thing. It's appealing. This idea of absolute freedom to do anything you want to do seems very appealing to younger generation. They actually think anarchy would be a good idea. Anarchy would not be such a good idea. And when true anarchy takes over, you may think it's fun to do whatever you want without consequences, but guess what? That also means other people can do whatever they want without consequences. And then what are you going to do when a mob of people turns on you? No police you can call for help. There's no government that can come and save you. So look, some governments may be wicked. True. But there's nothing more wicked than unrestrained humanity that's free to do whatever it wants. That led to Genesis 6 and the flood. There was anarchy before the flood, and the result was widespread chaos and murder. So however unjust you think you may have it in whatever country you live in, is consider the alternative. And just remember this. God expects you to simply submit to those who rule. For all authority comes from God. And now it would be a perfect time to look at Romans 13. So turn there with me. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. In Romans 13, Paul gives the Roman church a very similar instruction but he takes it a little bit further. So it's a, it's a helpful reminder for us. It's helpful for us to look at to fill in some of the blanks. And you have to remember, Romans was written to the church at Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. So any instruction on submitting to government doesn't get much more serious than this. I mean, this is Rome. This is where it's happening. What does Paul say to the Roman church in regard to this subject matter? Romans 13, let's just read through, make a few comments. Look at verse 1. Every person, note, every person, not a few, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Again, this is Paul writing to the church in Rome who they suffer under Nero and the other Caesars more than anyone. But he says, everyone be in subjection to them. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed what? The ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do it as evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is what? It's, it's a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are, get this, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. 
Render to all what is due them. Here he parallels Christ. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. What's he saying? I mean, whatever it is, from paying taxes to jury duty, do it with a joyful, submissive heart. Whether it's to the government or police officers, even to your employer or school administration, the point from these texts is whatever authority you have in your life, you honor God by submitting to and respecting that authority. This is how you ultimately submit to God. Turn back to Titus chapter 3. From the very beginning of Christianity, people questioned Christianity as being anti-Rome or anti-emperor. They thought this was like a new anti-emperor movement, this new little religion, this new sect called Christianity. If you're back at Titus chapter 3, look, look back actually at Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Chapter 13, he says, Believers are to be, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. You may not notice this at first, but that verse, what we just read, it sounds very anti-emperor. It's a very anti-emperor sounding verse. Now, maybe you don't follow. Let me, let me fill you in. You see, Caesar, he viewed himself as the, the true God and the true Savior of the people. He was the true God and Savior, not this Jesus. And furthermore, you see in verse 13, you see that word appearing, in the NASB at least, you see the word appearing? In the Greek, it's epiphania, from which we get our word epiphany. And in the ancient world, they thought, you know, when one of their gods showed up, it was an epiphany. God showed up. Caesar, he claimed that he was an epiphany. He was a god that just showed up. So here you have Paul in verse 13 saying, no, in reality... Jesus is the true God, he's the true Savior, and he's the true appearing or the true epiphany. And so you can perhaps understand why some would think or claim that Christianity was an anti-emperor movement. But to avoid any misconception, Paul includes Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. And just because Christ is the true God and Savior... That doesn't mean Christians should ignore civil authority. Instead, Paul says in verse 1, believers should respect and obey civil authority. And that's what's at stake here, both in the past and today. It's the reputation and the credibility of the gospel. Paul knew that's what was at stake. In the ancient world, if people believed that Christianity was nothing more than just another anti-Rome movement or anti-emperor movement, it would have lost all its credibility for no good reason. And Paul didn't want that to happen, and, and the same is true today. And think about this. If people think the word evangelical is nothing more than a political party, then half of America is already turned off to it. God does not want his gospel to be identified with political upheaval or insurrection because the gospel is not a political movement. If anything, we must let the cross offend people, not our political disrespect. 
And so again, verse 1, you need to submit yourselves to rulers' authorities. And then he adds in there, verse 1, to be obedient to them. Very simply, he says, do what they tell you to do. You have those leaders above you. If you want to obey God, he's saying you obey them. That's how you obey God, by obeying your authorities, with just one exception. Any time any ruler or authority or government above you tells you to sin, God now wants you to disobey. That's a just civil obedience in the eyes of God. You remember in Acts, Peter and the apostles were the Jews, the ruling Jews, arrested them, they said, stop preaching Christ. And they said, essentially, this is one where we cannot submit. No, we must preach Christ. And we must obey God rather than men. So there is a precedence when the government would call you to sin. But other than that, other than that one exception, there's no other exceptions in Scripture to obeying. So that means if taxes go through the roof, God wants you to obey. If a, a new healthcare law goes into, or healthcare bill goes into law that you know you don't like, God wants you to obey. Whatever it is, verse one, it's pretty clear. I'm not making it up. Be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient. And then lastly, in verse one, he says to be ready for every good deed. This is simply being sincere, loving, eager to serve others. It's where you're putting yourself in a position to to do what is good and to do what is right. And likely here Paul has in mind civic good deeds, good deeds in relation to the state. But it can also be taken generally. And and really that phrase here is a good transition from verse 1 to verse 2. You see, verse 1 describes the relationship of Christians to the government. But in verse 2, Paul broadens his scope and deals with the relationship of Christians to society in general. Just like in the ancient world, not only are we ruled by a largely unbelieving government, but we live in a largely unbelieving world, like we've already said. So how does God expect us to live in that? Well, here we have our two reminders. First, we've covered the first reminder, be submissive to authorities from verse 1. Now let's move on to our second reminder from these two verses. Secondly now, from verse 2, be loving to all. From verse 2, be loving to all. That's our second reminder. Look at verse 2. He says, To malign no one, but to be peaceable, gentle, and showing every consideration for all men. Really, three, you say, character qualities are given here. First, to malign no one. Second, to be peaceable and gentle, and gentle which I'm, I'm uh, including together. And third, to show every consideration for all men. Let's go through these one by one. First, in relation to society in general, God wants you to, what's it say? Malign no one. To malign no one. If you don't know what malign, malign means, the Greek word may actually help you out here. It's blasphemeo, to blaspheme. When we're directed toward others, we're talking about slandering or reviling or insulting other people. That's to malign. It's when you speak evil about someone else. You're out to defame someone else's character. And here, what's it say? Malign no one. Keyword, no one. There's no exceptions. Not your enemies. Not God's enemies. It says malign no one. 
And if someone's attacking God, yeah, stand up. Defend the truth. But don't let your defense turn into offense where you start attacking the other person's character. In debate, those are known as ad hominem attacks. It's where instead of discussing the issue at hand, you just start slinging mud at the other person and and tearing into them personally. You malign them. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it is an election year. You'll know soon enough. But speaking of politics, you know how many Christians slander or malign political figures without even flinching? Now, for example, how many anti-Obama slurs or insults have escaped from your mouth? Now, I don't care if you think he's doing the worst job ever. Maybe true, maybe not. It doesn't matter. What's our text say? God says there's no reason to malign or slander anyone. It says no one. No exceptions. And the tragic thing is that when people do this, it hurts the gospel. That's the problem here. I mean, just think, if you go around just spewing anti-Obama speech or anti-Bush speech, whatever, it doesn't matter. Whatever you're doing, it's going to be turning off 50% of the population, roughly. That means right away, half the people won't listen to anything you have to say including the gospel. You've already shut them off to you. Look, if Jesus didn't even slander the people who crucified him, you probably don't have any reason to slander anyone else. Rather, think about this. In love, instead of slandering other people or political figures, anyone, try this. Try praying for them. Isn't that what 1 Timothy 2 says? We're close enough. Turn there. First Timothy chapter 2, just a few pages back. First Timothy chapter 2. Speaking of kings and rulers, what does it say? First Timothy 2, verses 1 through 2. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And seeing that this year is an election year, man, this is so applicational. Don't don't participate in all the, the negativity or the mudslinging. Instead, be praying. Praying for all of our rulers and authorities. That's our first reminder in verse 2. Malign no one across the board. Malign no one. Instead, Pray for them. Second reminder in verse 2. He says, first, malign no one. Secondly, he says, to be peaceable and gentle. To be peaceable and gentle. I'm sure these really come as a pair throughout Scripture. For instance, in the elder qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, the elder must be not addicted to wine, but gentle and peaceable, free from the love of money, and so on. So they come together. And to be peaceable means to be uncontentious. It's You're friendly. With others, you're not quarrelsome. You're not easily dragged into fights or arguments. This is the type of person who, no matter how long they're forced to sit and wait at the DMV, they don't cause a scene. They don't get angry. They're not yelling at anybody. This is the type of person who, when someone kind of swoops in and takes their parking spot at the last minute, they just let it go, move on. They're not going to cause a fight. They're peaceable. And this word is paired with gentle, which means gentle. You, I'm pretty sure you know what gentle means. 
kind, gracious, humble, meek. And Christ, Christ was the perfect example of what it looks like to be gentle with people and just treat people gently wherever they are. I mean, just think about this. Pretend you're a paramedic and you show up on the scene of an accident. A man has been hit by a car and he has broken bones pretty much everywhere. You need to transport him to a gurney, load him on the ambulance, take him away. So how are you going to do that? You just kind of roughly you know, grab him by the shoulders, drag him across the asphalt, throw him on the gurney, and just kind of slam him into the back of the ambulance? I hope not. Or are you going to just you know, very gently lift him onto the gurney and, and delicately put him into the ambulance and get going? I hope that's what you would do if you were my paramedic, knowing that any such trauma would only be more painful. And, and look, spiritually speaking, like Christ... You're going to encounter broken people in life. You're going to deal with very fragile people in the church who have spiritually every bone broken in their body. How are you going to treat them? Understand, God wants you to treat them gently. Be gentle with them and kind and gracious. What if they sin against you? It doesn't matter. People sinned against Christ and he was still gentle with them. A couple of verses to drive this home. Galatians 6.1 Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Romans 12.18 If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. 2 Timothy chapter 2 Turn there. Anytime we have a 2 Timothy verse, I'm just going to tell you to turn there because it's like one page. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 24 This is a great verse that really sums up our two attributes here, peaceable and gentle. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, verse 25, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. It's a reminder we need. Be peaceable. Be gentle. Thirdly now from Titus chapter 3. Third reminder, to show consideration for all men. To show every consideration for all men. I like how thorough that phrase is. He doesn't say, you know, show some consideration for some men. He says, show all consideration for every man. Just so comprehensive. And it's continual. Continually being show consideration for all people. And to show consideration means to show kindness or friendliness, courtesy to others. And today, I think we take this passively. You know, if someone comes across my path, if I run into someone, okay, I'll be kind and considerate. But otherwise, I'm not going to go out of my way to be kind and considerate to someone. I'm doing my thing. But Paul, in verse 2, he means something far more active. He's saying, yeah, actively go out of your way to be kind and considerate for other people. You should be looking for ways to be considerate for others. You should be looking for ways you can bless other people. When's the last time you said, how can I bless that person? Friend, family member, stranger? How many times have you, for instance, you know, I don't know, been at work and you just, you just wish someone would cover your weekend shift or something like that? The point is, you be that person for someone else. 
You be the person who covers someone's weekend shift or whatever. Just think about this. What do you wish other people would do for you? Now, whatever that is, you do that for someone else. That's how it works. Pretty easy. You'd be asking yourself, how can you go out of your way to be considerate for others? For God is very much pleased by this. It's what he wants to see out of the church. The church should be doing that. Put these three reminders together in Titus chapter 3, verse 2. Malign no one, be peaceable and gentle, and show every consideration for all men. And what do you get? What you get is simply a picture of being loving to all. Being loving to all. And that's our second overall reminder here, to be loving to all. And that's, that's what God wants you to do. That's how God wants you to interact with the world, to be loving. That's why in the New Testament... We don't have to remember, thankfully, thousands of commands. If you can get two, you're pretty good. Love God, love your neighbor. You'll be pretty squared away. And the whole love your neighbor part, even if they're unbelievers. Being submissive to authorities, being loving to all, these are two keys to represent Christ in a world that needs him. I don't know about you all, but have you ever encountered the Christian who is really unloving toward unbelievers. Or toward, unbelie- or toward believers, he or she is great, pleasant, wonderful. But toward unbelievers, they take a, a real nasty turn. I have encountered some who essentially have the attitude toward unbelievers where, you know, they hate God, let them go to hell. And why should I bother being kind to them? That's pretty harsh, and so I sincerely hope none of you feel that way towards unbelievers. But think about that question, though. Why should you bother being kind to unbelievers? Think about that question. And here we are, living in a society and a government that, it's true, mostly hates God, mostly hates Christ, mostly hates us, mostly hates everything we stand for. Why should we bother being nice to them, being kind to them? Why should we go out of our way to show consideration to them? I mean, it's not like they're going to return the favor. If God saves them, good. That's good. But if not, like, why should we care? Why should we show consideration? This question must not have been far off from Paul's mind because he answers it in the next verse. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. What does he say? He says the key is remembering that you once were no different. Look at verse 3. He says, For we also, notice that, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. In other words, he's reminding you that, hey, before you show so much contempt for an unbeliever, just remember, you were once an unbeliever. You too once hated God and Christ and Christians, whether you admitted it or not. But even while you were an unbeliever, God loved you and God saved you. Look at the next verse, verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior 
and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So if God showed you kindness and mercy, even while you were his enemy, how can you not show kindness and mercy toward others as well? It's a lesson not so much for your head, but for your heart. A lesson to build a heart of compassion for the lost. That's what Christ had. He looked out at the crowds. Crowds of people who were lost. What did he feel? He felt compassion because they were sheep without a shepherd. So as you leave here this morning remembering, number one, to be submissive to authorities, and number two, to be loving to all, throw in a third one, namely remembering Christ. Remember who he is, remember what he did, remember how he loved you, even while you were the lost one, even while you were the enemy. And let that remembrance motivate you to love, to good deeds. Let Christ's love for you fuel your love, even for the world. It's true, we do live in an unbelieving world with largely unbelieving leaders, But our goal is to witness the love of Christ to this world through our love for them. Let's pray. Father God, we we thank you for your love. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the cross where you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son for us that we would not perish, that we would have everlasting life. Lord, you loved us while we were your enemies. Thank you. Thank you for doing that, Lord. And, and thank you for your, your word this morning. We, it's true, we live in the world. And how are we to interact with this world that, that hates you and that hates your son, that even hates us? Yet we were once just like them, and you call us to simply love them, to submit to those who rule, to love everyone else, That's what we're called to do, Lord. We're we're in the world. We're not of it. We're separate, but yet we still live amongst them. So help us, Lord. Help us to witness the love of Christ to this world so that the world might be transformed, not condemned, but redeemed through the blood of Christ like we once were and are still today. So thank you for these truths. May we live them out. Give us that greater compassion for the lost. They're perishing, and it It should break our hearts such that we do something about it. We get out there and and just tell them about Christ. May we be motivated toward that end. We love and thank you for what you've done in our lives, though. We just want to praise your name in all that we do. In your name we pray. Amen.